there's something curious about this broadcast. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello there, everyone. This is TGP Nominal. No, your ears are not deceiving you. This is not, in fact, Mark Taylor. The accent, I'm sure, gave it away. But instead, this is his trusty partner in crime, John Berger, coming to you solo because Mark's not available. Truth, what happened? He hit the lottery, flew off to the Cayman Islands without me, and told me to watch the shop until he got back. Very rude of him. I mean, he's down there basking in the sunshine while I'm here stuck in my studio. He's a very cruel man indeed. Actually, he's in the hospital after getting a shipment of Mountain Dew from the States, and he tried to drink the whole shipment in one sitting. Would he ever receive a full shipment of Mountain Dew from the States? That is probably what would happen. Truth of the matter is, Mark is simply very busy this month. Now, I'm not at liberty to say why at the moment. Hopefully, Mark and I will have the big reveal in the next episode. And I'm sure that you can expect Mark and Ross Hockham to be coming at you in uh, a few weeks for the December skies and what you can see from simply looking up. So this time around, I'm going to be covering something that I went to earlier this year. As you know, Mark is big on uh, Field of Force Day and, and other events that deal with disabilities and so forth. Well, if you've been listening to TGP Nominal for a few years, you might remember that back in 2017, I went up to Syracuse, New York and Syracuse University for Cripping the Comic-Con 2017, uh, where our good friend Daniel White and his daughter Emily White were on the panel. And so we were invited back to handle the recording of the podcast for this year's Cripping the Comic-Con as well. Now, if you've never heard of it before, Cripping the Comic-Con is a biannual symposium uh, you can call it a comics convention in a way, but they also have workshops and so forth that provide participants with the opportunity to engage in, in uh, discussions and workshops and so forth about the representations of various disabilities, both seen and unseen, that exist within mainstream pop culture nationally, internationally. And in particular, this pop culture phenomenon focuses on comic books, graphic novels, and manga. But even though it focuses on comic books and pop culture, it also has discussions on other things, uh, such as cosplay, uh, light painting, and uh, even hip-hop. So the events and discussions really focus on positivity, inclusion, and seeing how others have not allowed their disability, whether physical or mental, to stop them from expressing themselves and doing what they want to do and reaching out to help others. So my first interview is with Joseph Ministeri and Alexis Kennedy. Uh, Joseph I met at the 2017 Cripping the Comic-Con, and we've stayed in touch ever since. Both he and Alexis suffer from depression and anxiety, and they use various outlets like uh, drawing, photography, poetry, and so forth to help to deal with the anxiety and depression issues. But more than that, they also talk about how helping someone else with those situations can also help themselves. So I'm here with Joe Ministeri again, and Alexis Kennedy. Joe, we talked last time, good to see you again. Yes. So, what brings you back? Uh, so today I am uh, doing the Cosplay Disabilities uh, Workshop, as well as promoting my book, which has been out for a year officially, uh, Butterflies in Space. And um, over the past year, I started mentoring Alexis Kennedy, 
we did a writing challenge together and she wrote a book and with the funding that I made from my book, Butterflies in Space, it funded, went on to fund her book and today's the first day of launch for her book and so oh. through mentoring I'm also teaching her about marketing her book um, and it's really amazing to see the support um, of how my book the support that my book not just my book but all the creators and between me Alexis Nancy with her art and sewing and stuff as well as you know all the other creators here seeing that support and how amazing it's been and it wouldn't have been possible my book wouldn't have been possible without you know having being surrounded by that positive creativity and stuff um, my book butterflies in space it started it's an interesting story because it started out as a comic book pitch that was a short story it ended up turning into a poetry book with a short story so it's a short story with poems themed around it in the story there are butterflies and each butterfly represents a person's perspective and so each poem represents one of those butterflies as I move into the next wave it's going to become a comic and it's going to be some animation uh, some videography, filmography. I'm working on audio play or audiobook version of it, and it was inspired by the, this thing, this mental health campaign called the uh, Butterfly Project, which they teach people who self-harm to take a sharpie and draw a butterfly instead of self-harming. And after hearing success stories about that, it inspired. It was one of the inspirations for the story. Since writing it, I actually have been got, gotten in t- contact with the, some of the original members of the, the original people behind the Butterfly Project oh, nice. campaign, and one of them's an artist. And they actually, I'm right now talking with them about potentially having them do, be, be an artist on the comic, which is, which would be really really cool. And I'm hoping that each story through the as I move into the next wave is done by a different artist and a different person so that way it can really rep- be representative of each story being a different perspective and right but at least this way you can, you can but, get it started with someone who's been there they yeah. understand what it's all about As, yes and the other cool thing is that using the money and taking that money and recycling it and taking it and giving back doing mentorships and teaching you know there's all I went through a lot of failures before I got before I found success with butterflies in space and I, I'll say it was a good two or three years that I ended up leaving a lot of tabling at conventions, leaving disappointed and just being in the red and now learning what works. I want to share that knowledge on and at the same time teach you know about that marketing aspect and teach about the finance financial aspect because a decade ago if, if I knew what I know now between you know how to you know do business startup, market myself, value myself, such an important word there, you know valuing myself and my work and understanding what I'm worth, which I still have difficulty with. I've noticed I've noticed a big trend between finances and depression, especially among young people. And that's something that's so fixable because it doesn't take a lot of money to put to put aside if you do little by little and to create a you know funding and stuff for yourself for yeah five dollars a week over a year adds up really fast but also you know combining that skill with investing in yourself and learning that investments doesn't always have to be a stock you know or a bond or it could be investing in your future and investing in you know your art and promoting yourself and learning that you have value and you put yourself out there so that way the world can appreciate you for you know your face value and you can inspire others, and that's an investment of itself. No, absolutely. It's always good to hear someone come back to you and say, I learned a lot from you, 
you know, yeah. or maybe even in a situation of you know, changed my life. And that's you know, what's really cool is you know, uh, between meeting Nancy and that inspirational story, I've learned a lot through that. But then you know, taking a you know, starting to mentor Alexis. I've learned so much from her and her perspectives that I would, you know, would have never even thought of some of it. And part of the cool thing about mentor-mentee relationships is that both parties are learning from each other, and it's not a one-sided learning and retaining information. It's actually hands-on. It's learning, and it's growing as a person on both sides. Go over to you, Alexis. Your book is This Is How It Feels, and what, where did that come from? Well, I wanted the book to have a title that meant something to me. This is what it feels like, like, is strong, and I want it to leave an imprint on everyone that reads the book's mind, because This is What It Feels Like is a poem book filled with poems that I've written at different points in my life. I chose a title like This is What It Feels Like so that people would draw their attention to that poem in the book because it is probably one of the most powerful poems I have written. I do struggle with depression, anxiety, and PTSD, so it's kind of about my experience going in and out of hospitals and meeting people that you really trust and then kind of losing those people because you're not supposed to have contact with them anymore. That's kind of what rooted my poetry journey was because I had gone through some really dark stuff and writing poetry got me through it and helps others in a way that it lit the way for others to just be inspired by my journey to better their journeys and work harder in their lives as well. So then what got you to be uh, to have Joe as your mentor? Um, me and Joe actually met at a mental health conference and um, I don't know, I was drawn to him immediately because he was the kid with the big camera and the funky jacket with all the pins on it. (laughs) And I just thought he was pretty cool, honestly. Plus, I could tell that he liked to find me in the crowd to take pictures of me because I had some bright green hair and that was an interesting point to him. Once we did start talking, like we really did click and him mentoring me really means a lot and he's gotten me through the harder parts and helped me to publish my first book and inspire me to work harder on my art and put my heart fully into my art and really show the world what I've got to show. Joe, you said that you have also learned from her. Yes. What would you? What kind of things? Uh, so, different perspectives on things that some things that I haven't dealt with, but then some things that I have dealt with, but never looked at it in a positive way. I always viewed it negatively, and also coming to helping me come to terms with aspects of my disability that I didn't want to think about, and I guess put aside and putting aside my own personal um, self-worth and self-value and self-care because I do, I'm also a direct support worker and that's a field that in social work has a lot of burnout and doesn't hasn't kept up well and you tend to put other people before yourself and as the burnout hits you know it definitely doesn't help me with my depression and stuff mm-hmm. like that having somebody to talk to about that and to remind me that I have self-worth to encourage me to 
move past my fears and you know after seeking out help so many times and it failing to try and seek out help again and move past that fear and so that's been a huge deal yeah so this past year it's been an incredible like a really amazing journey a lot of highs and lows but having somebody to reach out to during those lows was a first for me because I have never really had somebody that cared enough to help me through it and make me feel validated instead of just saying, you know, hey, you know, you're, you know, everything's going to be okay. And instead saying, hey, it may suck now, but may suck a bit less later. You know, it's a journey, but also, you know, the perspectives and seeing a different perspective and, you know, mental, you know, mental health and disability from a different person's perspective. It's different. The way I always viewed this, uh, like scars, for example, I always viewed scars as a story behind that. But I never thought about it as, um, as Alexis had mentioned to me, it's a time that she survived. You know, every scar that, you know, a person has. And that's, you know, something I never thought about was a, per- a time that somebody survived. I always thought of it as a story behind it. And it's those little things that, you know, you learn and it alters your perception of the world and makes you appreciate it. And is that... Is that basically your experience as well, with talking with Joe and with writing your own book? Um, Yes, I definitely see a change in myself. Um, Joe has helped me gain confidence in my own work, in my poetry and in my art. And um, he's definitely helped show me the way of how to go about things. And he's really teaching me a lot. And I'm learning so much from him about, you know, how to market my book and just how to sell it and what to do to take the next step in my artwork to make it more me. And he really works to make me look within myself to find the best art I could produce. Joe has taught me that my art is actually valuable when that's not something I always believed. Mm -hmm. But I definitely see myself as a creator now being able to share my story and showcase my poetry and my art it really makes me a lot happier and I feel like it helps me find myself in different ways therapy wasn't always something that worked for me but poetry is something that has always worked for me well so as somebody with anxiety um you don't always know what's causing the anxiety. Right. Um, same that, thing with depression. My says that too. She says same thing with the depression. She won't know why, and it drives same, her nuts. Yeah, depression's the same way, and that's one. It, it drives me nuts. But what really uh, drives me even more insane is when people say, "Why are you depressed? You have no reason to be depressed." Oh yeah, yeah snap and, out of it, get over it. Yeah, or like just, but even just, you know, why? And my response has always been, if I knew why I was depressed. I would not be depressed because right. I'd be able to tackle that yep. and, you know, or at least be able to figure out, you know, what I can do to alleviate that. But that's where anxiety and depression come in and that's what makes them a disability. But an invisible one is because it's, you know, not only just invisible to others, the root causes of it can be invisible to yourself as well. You know, you don't know why you're why you're facing depression or anxiety. You know, is it a chemical imbalance in your brain, or is it something else that's going wrong going on in your life? But you know, your subconscious isn't letting you tackle that, or is it you know a subconscious fear, or is it your environment? Is it you know that you haven't eaten? It could be a million and one different causes. You know, is it something you know a medical cause? You know, because 
psychiatric movement is so quick to diagnose and give medication before doing a full, genuine medical, physical, and stuff like that, to the point where now even the physicals, you go to a doctor and a lot of them, it's just, they won't even touch you. They'll just type everything on a computer. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. it's, it's a shame. And um, it goes to show that our healthcare system is not where it should be and it hasn't kept up with the times and now my counselor it's a shame that I have to say this but they're in Connecticut but it's helpful because we live in an era of technology and I can use video chat to you know reach out and get help and you know I don't have to leave my own home and that also makes me feel more safe because I can I can have the counseling in my safe space and that's something that we should consider you know the we should consider more with technology and you know, also I look at it as you know it we have the ability to you know take what's being said and um, with technology we can record that better you know because it's not just their notes now because it's done through video chat so there's actual you know you can go back and you can listen to it if you had to being able to go back and see how you were years ago, you know, or, you know, even a a month ago, and, like, looking at that and combining that with the biofeedback, I've been able to see a major improvement in myself since uh, taking on Alexis as a mentee. So if anybody wants to take a look at what you've got, buy your books, and so whatever, where do they have to go? Uh, So my Instagram is butterfliesin.space. My webpage is unlockcreativity.org. Then also I just launched butterfliesin.space. But at the current moment, that'll take that, which is an awesome domain name to go with butterflies <laughs> in space. Um, but butterfliesin.space, the domain name right now, it'll actually take you, if you put that in your computer it'll, on, online, it'll take you directly to my Instagram page as I develop the, go into developing the uh, site more. So it's there as a placeholder for the time being. But unlockcreativity.org is the other site, uh, which has my, which is my blog about my sketchbook, which started actually here at Copenhagen Comic Con a few years ago. Um, you can find me on Instagram at bruises. butterflies, <laughs> and that's basically it right now. I'm hoping okay. to grow that's my social media presence, but yeah, this is my start. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you both for your time, Joe. Good seeing you again. Another person who I met at the previous Cripping the Comic-Con was David Schleich, and David is a light painter. Now, you might think, what is a light painter? What does that mean? How does one paint with light? Well, similarly to how uh, when you're taking photographs of the night sky, you leave the shutter open to collect more light. That's effectively how light painting works, leaving the shutter open on the camera and then using a flashlight or other source to create streaks and designs and drawings. I'm sure you've seen images created by light painting on the internet before. Well, David took up light painting after he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was 21. Of course, cancer and the many drugs that have to be taken, well, they they take a lot of energy out of you. And he was taking a large number of pills and he wanted to document this time in one way or another. He wasn't sure how. So what he did was he kept all of his pill bottles and then years later he would take all of those pill bottles and use those to light paint with them. So not only was his light painting a way to help him deal with what he was going through, 
but he started sharing his light painting with others so that they could discover what they could do with it. So I'm here with David Schlake. Yes. Okay, got it. And uh, we met last time. Yeah. I unfortunately did not get a chance to interview you. I'm rectifying that. Excellent. So <laughs> your work is all painting with light. Yes. So how did you come to start getting into that? Well, I started with photography, and I didn't know about light painting at the time. And I started seeing, um, watching TV and seeing light trails on TV and wondering how would I recreate that with photography. And I figured it looks like a long exposure, one or two seconds. I can do that. So I started photographing cars trailing by with one or two second exposures, and you see the trails of light. And for years, that's what I was doing short exposures and then when I discovered a group called Light Junkies on Flickr I started seeing people doing amazing light paintings from all over the world and then you see so many more opportunities and, and trying to push yourself further so I started doing longer exposures setting my camera on a tripod for like 30 seconds but then I started using a rubber band and a piece of foam board to hold the shutter button down, and then I was able to go beyond 30 seconds. It did work for quite a few years, so I improvised, you know, and eventually I got a light, uh, light remote now. So you just push the button once to open, push again to, to close, and it's easier. I often feel like demonstrations of what helps explain it, like just... Yeah. Just telling someone what it is seems more abstract because it's harder to visualize mentally thinking what you're talking about. So I can understand people not understanding a a description of it, but once you start moving the light across the camera, show them the image, and just see how excited they get, it's like magic in the camera, and that's what I like about light painting. Nice. Well, I have a series on my uh, cancer experience. So... When I got cancer, I wanted to record my cancer experience, but I didn't know how. So I was having difficulty like holding objects because uh, the, the chemo was destroying muscle tissue. I was getting weaker and weaker. So holding a camera, I thought it might get shaky. I was having uh, difficulty seeing, and that's part of what brought me to light painting eventually because uh, sensitivity to light. So there were times where I would turn my head and see light trails, and then wanting to recreate that in a photograph too. So I collected my pill bottles, thinking eventually I'll figure out something to do with it, and I didn't know what, and I wasn't light painting at the time. So it was basically years of collecting pill bottles that I wasn't using, (laughs) hoping one day I'll do something, and... It's kind of hoarding stuff, hoping. That's like a lot of my art supplies is hoarding, hoping to do something. Like I see potential in these objects. Right. One of these days, <laughs> I'll definitely do something. I had all these pill bottles and suddenly realized I could write messages with it, write words. So with light painting, you can write words with a light aimed at your camera in the air. But you have to write backwards and you have to visualize your spacing. And my light writing was very sloppy. So I just wasn't very good at doing that. So writing uh, with pill bottles, putting it on the floor, writing the letters, writing messages, messages that might help inspire me, messages I've heard patients say, people say to patients, just any phrase that just 
caught my attention, I would write with. And then during a long exposure, the camera's in the, on the bulb setting because I don't know how long this is going to take. Um, I'm shining a light over each letter in the dark, trying not to kick into the pill bottles. And then if you do kick into the pill bottles, you just don't like painting your mistakes and the camera won't <laughs> see it. And so I, I explained that to someone and thought, that sounds like a great life lesson. Don't spotlight your mistakes and people won't notice. That's true. One of the things I like about the series is that I'm doing it based on my cancer, but I like to think it, it could encapsulate any uh, health issue, mental illness. Could A lot of the issues overlap. So I've had people without cancer say, I can relate to this. So... Um, when I started getting sick, I was around 16, so I was drug-free, didn't drink, smoke. And then once I got cancer, it's like everything they tell healthy people to stay away from, that's the treatment for cancer. So they're giving me lots of drugs, chemicals, mm -hmm. radiation. So you're, you're trying to poison the cancer, which ends up affecting the healthy cells as well. So seeing how many of these bottles are collecting over the years the overwhelming amount it becomes th this metaphor of all the prescriptions you're on and how much that adds up and how overwhelming it can feel at the time when you have to take multiple pills when you have to schedule out when you can eat when you have to have an empty stomach to take this pill and that pill i'd have to take one pill in order to take another pill so I would have to take a anti-nausea pill, so I wouldn't throw up a chemo pill. So I'm taking the pills in order to take another pill, or uh, had to do injections and take a pill to help with pain a half an hour before the injection, and then give myself an injection and fall asleep and try to sleep through the pain. Did you ever count how many pill bottles you had at any point? I would not do that. It would just take way too long. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I don't know if anyone's interested in hearing the numbers, but I wasn't interested in counting. I understand. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's fair enough. Yeah. Like, I wasn't sure how else to really visualize something where I can express it when people can look at the photograph and get what I'm talking about. Right. So if I just photograph myself... They don't know what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling. So these pill bottles writing messages are a way of expressing a point. And then light painting my face uh, with a glow stick so you don't actually see my face. You just see this this being of light. Mm -hmm. So because you don't see my face, it's, it's not about me. It's not about, oh, that kid it mm -hmm. went through this, this guy went through that. It could be anyone. Yes. So that's what I liked about getting rid of my identity when trying to tell this story, to try to make it more relatable so that people can decide. Well, it's like when you look at art, it's not a math equation with a right or wrong answer, so people can relate to it and bring their own life experiences to the artwork they're looking at. So I don't like telling people, this is my story, this is what this means. I like people to look at it first and decide what it means to them, and then I can tell them my story. So when I go to an art gallery, I skip the artist statement, I look at the art for myself, and then read what the artist's intention was. Right. So that's what I want when I wrote a book. 
I put the, the photos first and then the image descriptions and what the photos meant to me in the back because I didn't want that to interfere with how they were going to read it. Also not even right next to the photo or under the photo, you had a completely separate part of the book. Right. So then you'd have a small picture with a description of what it meant to me. So then you know which photo I'm talking about and what it meant. Because I don't want to kind of contaminate people's idea when they first see something. Right. That's So when I go to galleries, I want to avoid the artist statements. I want to see if I can connect with what they were saying without knowing what their intentions were. So then I started doing cosplay photography and then less light painting. And now I kind of want to incorporate the cosplay with the light painting. Well, so I was thinking light painting could be an interesting way to show uh, superpowers and magic and that kind of thing. Well, like have someone who can manipulate lightning and then use light painting to show lightning coming from their hands. Exactly, yeah. That'd be a cool way to do it. But one of my reasons for cosplay photography is kind of a photojournalistic interest in photographing passionate people who have some visual, something visually interesting that you can capture in a photograph. So like a musician with their instrument, a cosplayer showing their artwork through what they're wearing or the makeup and the hair. So it's just that passion and it's, it's something visual, it stands out, it's something you don't see all the time. I especially like seeing cosplayers when they're going off the con to, say, a store or something, and the contrast of that. To me, it's, it feels more magical doing it in camera than Photoshop. So some people can fake light painting on a computer, and I kind of want to, I, I want to feel that it's just another tool for art, and right. I should be okay with that, but part of me <laughs> prefers in camera still. It's always interesting to see who you might inspire to do what you're doing, too, and then how that person can inspire someone else, and then before you know it, someone learns something, and they don't even know you're the reason why they know that, because of the chain of people in between. Right. Because my friend was explaining that to me about how I taught him light painting, he taught his girlfriend light painting, she light painted her toys that inspired other people who follow her, and she taught them. So now these people who I never met, and probably wouldn't have met through their toy photography, I, I probably wouldn't have met them, know, know it because I taught him and he taught her. So I always like seeing light painters willing to teach others. You know, because I learn from other light painters, so I'll put, I'll teach, like, do these workshops, tell them this is how I do it. If people ask me questions online, I'll answer it. I, I do tutorials online on Flickr where you can see this is how I did a stencil. Right. I just took a big piece of cardboard I got from Costco that they were going to throw away. I'm just, I just walk around and no one says anything, so I keep coming back and getting more. And I'll cut out, say, an animal of there and shine a light behind the cardboard, just like a painter would with spray paint. I'm doing with light, like a light sword I got from a carnival. And to shine that light, now you see this light-painted animal. And I'll, I'll give these instructions so other people can do it too. Because to me, teaching... And just seeing people get excited over what I know is just amazing. And then that motivates me to do more. When it comes to photography, I sometimes think the great photographers are the ones who know how to edit their photos. Mm -hmm. So they used to say, if you get one great shot out of a roll of 36, consider yourself lucky. So then you don't show the other 35. Right. 
But if you did show the other 35, people were like, well, why'd you take this photo? Why'd you take that photo? It's like you had to take those to build up to that one. So that's something I sometimes, when I'm posting photos, I see little details I like, which not everyone else shares my interest in the little details. So I need to edit it a bit more because if I have a thousand photo album it gets a bit slow <laughs> to go through yeah, that. I understand so. that. But sometimes it is good to show, these are the mistakes I made to get to the good shot that I wanted. Yeah. Thank you for your time. It's good to finally get the interview with you. Yes, yeah, great seeing you again. If people want to see your light photography, where do they go? Still figuring that one out. Um, there's Flickr at David Schleich. So that's S-C-H-L-A-I-C-H. We will make sure to have links to it. So. Okay, yeah. I don't like to... Like, you know, Schleich. Yeah, you know. That's all. <laughs> and then there's uh, on Facebook, Light Against Cancer and Shining Light on Cancer. So earlier I was doing a project having other light painters donate light paintings. So if you go to Light Against Cancer on Facebook, you're going to see light painting from all over the world. Oh, that's cool. And then Shining on Light on Cancer is my light paintings for my cancer series. I do follow you on Instagram with your uh, Dave's Cosplay Photography. Yes. So, got and that one too. my light paintings from the workshop today is going to be on there. Okay, sounds good. Yes. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And uh, I guess until next time, I suppose. Yes. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. How many of you have ever heard of Archie Comics? Well, pretty much everyone has. And I had the pleasure of meeting Nancy Silverclight, who is the co-CEO of Archie Comics. She was at Cripping the Comic Con this year to talk about many different things not the least of which is the ability for comics to uh, encourage positivity and inclusivity. And she wanted to discuss a new character to the Archie comic world called Scarlet Salty, who is autistic. And she wanted to bring out a character who not only could connect to those who have autism, but also to bring a greater awareness of the condition to other people in general. So I'm here with Nancy, how do you pronounce your last name? Silberkleit. Silberkleit, okay. And what do you do? Well, I first like to say Zam Wham Wow to TGP Nominal. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. So I am the co-CEO to Archie Comics, and it's amazing the people I get to meet around the globe and hear what they do. So having a podcast that reaches out to the stars and the Mm -hmm. planets is phenomenal because I don't know if you know this, but Archie Comics was started in 1941 in the United States, but it went global. And that was all due to the art of conversation. It's people that have propelled the intellectual property, the brand of Archie and Friends around the globe. So one of our astronauts that you um, occasionally hear about is Mark Kelly Mm -hmm. and also his brother. But Mark Kelly um, and I are dear friends and Mark helped facilitate one of my dreams. I said, Mark, 
Archie Comics is known around the globe, but can we shoot it beyond the stars? Can we take Archie into outer space? Because many of the Archie covers, if you go back and see, you see Jughead wearing a astronaut um, uniform, or even Archie or Betty or Veronica. So they have always had, you know, the vision of being in a rocket ship. So Mark took the cover of one of our 32-page comics, and I gave him one that had that outer space look, and put put it on the Endeavor's last nice. mission. So it was on the Endeavor's last mission into outer space. And you can go on the NASA website, and it's documented. Very cool. Nice. So we've got a direct connection with TGP Nominal then. Absolutely. <laughs> so what brings you here today? Well, I launched a new character. Um, Archie and, and friends have launched a new character. Her name is Scarlet Salty. And Scarlet is part of the teens at Riverdale High. And Scarlet's very skilled in building. And not only building, but building ideas. But there's another part of Scarlet that she desires friendships. But her social cues make that awfully difficult for her because Scarlet is autistic. Scarlet is one of millions of autistic people. And if you meet an autistic mind, they're all very unique and different. But sometimes there's some commonalities. And one is engaging with people. Uh, sometimes the stress factor is just so hard, you know, it, it just makes them, um, you know, a little standoffish. So I wanted to bring that conversation to the the people, to you, you, myself, on how we have to, you know, understand people and be patient with people and reach out and let them know that, you know, we want to include them because Scarlett is at Riverdale High and she wants to be there with friends, but people have to understand um, her her likes, her boundaries, and understand her as a human being. So I thought Crypting the Con was um, a wonderful place to speak about Scarlet Salty from Archie Comics. And it's certainly, as you said, it's a global sensation now. So that puts it in areas that you know, might not be, uh, well, even here in America, it's still kind of something that people don't necessarily like to talk about. We're working on that, we're working on that, but there are other countries where it's even less talked about, and this could bring it into their world, too. Well, my background was a school teacher. I was a school teacher for 25 years, and if your audience is interested, how the heck did you get propelled, launched? Launched into the um, executive world of Archie Comics. Sadly, um, my husband's business partner, Archie Comics has always been a family business. My husband's longtime business partner, Richard Goldwater, had passed away, and then seven months later, my husband passed away. So I was left the stock, and there, believe me, there was was no idea for me to come in and run Archie Comics, nor was it, you know, ever my idea. But I didn't want to part with the stock, so I was asked to come in to be a CEO. And I think they were banking on that, you know, business was not for the teacher. But I found out it was the shoes of a school teacher that really prepared me for business. Teachers are doing business every day, and for anyone, um, you know, thinking about hiring someone in business. See if they have classroom time under their belt. Very um, helpful. So Archie Comics um, was created
created by two families back in 1941. And it was really to um, find a, um, a place for the females, for the girls to come in to the comic book world because everything was that, you know, blowing up and they thought, wow, let's introduce a comic character, Archie Andrews, that cannot decide about a female blonde or a female brunette and let's have love and romance. But little did they know this became a brand for everyone. It's genderless. It's timeless. It's, you know, ageless. So um, it was launched in the United States, but little did they know this would be something that would be propelled around the globe all by people seeing themselves in these panels, talking about, are they a Betty? Are they a Veronica? Are you a Kevin Keller? Are you a Jughead? Are you an Archie Andrews? So it was those taglines that propelled it around the um, planet to other countries. Even, you know, the dating style that's emulated in our books is not followed in other countries, but they still enjoy the, the humor and the insight into American culture. And as it picks up so many people, as I said, it picked up the interest of astronauts. Why not? So, you know, Archie Comics has been... Um, a literary read for many people. I know a doctor in Greenwich, Connecticut, that um, he can't put Archie Comics down. And I think his background was from maybe Argentina um, originally, and that's where he found Archie. But just, you know, think about how wide the fans are. You know, just, I, I feel that Archie should be an ambassador in the United States because if we're talking about you know, um, you know, politics and and um, you know, very hot topics. If you say Archie, mm-hmm. eyes just widen and hearts open, and they want to. Everyone hear. knows who he is. Yes. Yeah, so I feel it brings a happy moment and a happy um, platform to even out that you know we are connected and we do love to laugh and we do enjoy um, reading. Right, and and it's not necessarily a a sugar-sweet, sanitized comic either. Archie's never been afraid to tackle topics that otherwise might be avoided in other kind of comics like that. Absolutely, but especially now. Archie Comics has always had a formula. Put a bunch of high school teens in a school, create a conflict, let them figure it out without any adult intervention, Mm -hmm. but always part of the formula was to emulate the decade see what's happening outside. Our artists, our writers look at the fashion magazines. They read the newspapers. They bring in those issues into the platform, the story platform of Archie Comics. So here, you know, in this century, we have opioid abuse and, right. you know, so many other you know, dark topics like and gun violence. You know, how do you bring up those topics? So I believe in, and your audience can't see it, but I have a, a quote here, comic books plus children and equal reading, but not only reading, but knowledge, and once you have knowledge, you have confidence to talk about issues, so it is a, uh, a platform, graphic literacy, one of the oldest languages around, that allows you to talk about very difficult issues that are hard to bring up. Right, and, well, and you can also go back, and I remember listening on the panel on the way up here, and you mentioned the one character who's been 
traditionally considered to be kind of not moose. T- moose, moose. That's it. Moose. And all of a sudden, you flipped it on its head by saying that he was dyslexic. Yes, because no one should ever be called stupid or dumb, and I can relate to that because, as I said, I had been left back when I was in first grade. I could not read. So, you know, people that were around me that were very loving, they still, you know, use those little verbs, dumb, stupid, but no one's dumb or stupid. It's how information is um, given to you, and if you cannot connect with how it's given to you, you have to speak up. advocate for yourself and let people know I didn't get that let's try a different way so for you know the parents and the teachers um, everyone should come with a toolbox when it comes to learning and always make sure that comic book is in the toolbox plus you're also addressing I heard you say about uh, one of the issues is that people who might want to enjoy this who can't read it they have visual problems that are completely blind, and you're actually addressing that as well. Well, that was this incident where I was in an auditorium and a young girl was blind, asked me, is Archie in Braille? So I did get those two stories brailed for her. But to those who are blind, uh, there are agencies out there that provide you books, and you say, I want my comic books in Braille. They provide, you know, the blind population books that are braille and I did hear from someone here that it may be difficult with books that are categorized entertainment reading well I give a big shout out you know make a lot of noise because the books that are entertainment are very high powering um, literary experiences where it promotes critical thinking so it's the comic book that promote you are asked to expand the story you know the pure you know, entertainment is that fantasy, and Archie Comics is all about fantasy. But people have taken it to another another level where these characters are real. Right. And you're absolutely right that, that a lot of times, and I've seen this with my own kids, they're allowed to read books, but not comic books. Oh, no, no, you you no, can't no. include comic <laughs> books for school. And I understand that, but at the same time... As you said, with Archie, because they're dealing with real-world issues, maybe that's something that also should be considered because they could, the kids could be reading other books that are not comic books but also don't necessarily reflect real-world issues. Well, that's true, but just pure graphic literacy, any type of comic book, to me, with my background as a teacher, is... Um, high-quality literacy because you are given the text in the small speech bubble. There's not much text in the comic book, but graphics, pictures are a language unto themselves, so they are prompting you to expand it. So the brain will take in those visuals and analyze it, so one has to internalize it and then start doing some heavy critical thinking. So our common core standards, which our teachers are following across the United States when they um, you know, create lesson plans, require the teacher to introduce graphic literacy. So before a child uh, leaves school, they will be um, well-versed in comic books and graphic literacy. Thank you for your, very much for your time. I understand you're busy and we've got to get going here. So it's Archie's, but still, if people want to learn more about this, where do they go? They can go to archiecomics.com or if they want to reach out to me, because uh, I have three stories that are for um, Scarlet that are not in print but are available as a PDF. They can contact me at nancy, N-A-N-C-Y dot archiecomics at gmail.com. Nancy 
dot Archie Comics with an S at the end at gmail.com. So thank you so much, and may the force be with you. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you for your time. The last person that I had a chance to interview was Georgia Weber, and she is a comics artist and an editor, and she has an obsession, shall we say, with health and health communication. And the reason why she's so obsessed with communication is because, as she explained to me, she has a, a rare throat disorder to the point that doctors don't even know what's causing it, where the simple act of speaking causes pain in her throat. Now, I know that we've all experienced things like dry throat. Okay, that's easy. Get something to drink, and that will normally take care of it. But in this case, she's been to several doctors, and they don't know what's going on. So when it comes to daily life, she has effectively become, well, voiceless. And that reflects a great deal in the work that she does, because in addition to workshops and talks and performances and so forth, she produces the Maw Vocal Arts, which is a community event that is uh, celebrating the voice and all of its creative uses. Additionally, as an author, she's made a graphic memoir called Dumb, Living Without a Voice. And Dumb tells the story about how she copes with the everyday challenges that come with voicelessness. And one of the things that she really tries to focus on when she's doing her workshops is not only explaining what it's like to live without a voice, but to try to take the creativity that a lot of people have locked inside of them and bring it out. We've all had writer's block doing these podcasts. I've had several times where I'd think to myself, how am I supposed to introduce that? Uh, we've all had that sort of thing. And what Georgia likes to do is to try to help people express themselves, particularly through art. Even when someone has that all too common stumbling block of, where do I start? I am talking with Georgia Weber. And so you did a panel called Drawing the Inside Out, Making Comics for Yourself. Um, what was What's that about? I do... Uh form of comics that is personal storytelling but in the genre of graphic medicine so I'm very invested in people's internal experiences experiences of health and experiences of the world and so when I do this workshop it's really about drawing outside of oneself what others couldn't otherwise know about or see um, and then I added the sort of subheading, making comics for yourself, because it's not necessarily something we need to do to give or share to other, with sure. other people, um, but can be a very powerful exercise in just the creation and just the, the self-reflection of making something about ourselves. Um, I've offered a number of workshops in similar, like basically with that same theme, and I usually use the title because it just sort of unites my my general approach to um, teaching people about comics, but it, 
it's tailored based on the audience I'm expecting. So giving a drawing the inside out workshop at a comics festival in Chicago is different than giving it at a makerspace in Pittsburgh and is different than giving it at a disability uh, conference in Syracuse. So I got to shape it a little bit around the things that I was hearing from people here. Uh, Just sort of mental notes that I made as I was listening to people describe their experiences and seeing the threads connect to what I'm trying to share that is so valuable about comics and so versatile and flexible about making comics and then just generally the value of like asserting your own presence not only by existing which is its own powerful move but then also by uh, investing in describing something that fascinates you in a creative sense that shares your interpretation as well as um, you know the sort of uh, shared realities that we have Um, yeah the the personal and individual reality has so much to offer and I just want to make sure that people can see how it fits into all of these different spaces right and and there's also the I've, I've spoken with this with with others here that a lot of times Something that you're feeling can't be described in words mm-hmm. nearly as easily as it can be described in images. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to something like that, and you're, you're trying to help people to do that, where do you start? Yeah, well, uh, I have a few different tools that I turn to. Um, one of those things is if you are someone with a motivation, a specific message, something that you really want to express then I usually start by, I show people my process of making like a a page that's sort of a notes page and it's just lists and scribbled connected bubbles that are like this idea and then that idea and here's how they connect and here's a little arrow pointing to something. I want to make sure I see them, you know, in the same place, but I don't know how yet it's going to become a narrative um, or an image. So that's something that helps me just unload from my mind all the things that are making it hard to see a path forward without losing them altogether. So that's one tool that I use. Um, Another, especially with people who aren't sure what they want to say exactly, but are finding themselves drawn to um, creating something, uh, I really want to reduce the barriers that they might perceive to them creating that thing and those might be perceived barriers or actual so like the actual barriers I'm looking at is making sure that they have something to make marks on and something to make a mark with um, so I often provide like crayons and, and markers and all kinds of things and just paper just random like printer paper it doesn't have to be special and just showing like you know these are all tools and uh, you don't have to you know spend a lot or or focus on the tool itself so much as you do just to see what your tools are know what they are clearly and then start experimenting with them and often too the perceived barrier of um, meeting some sort of standard or, or skill level that they might not feel that they have and for me it's it's sort of the uh, a good beginning point and also a place to return to in my own practice to remember whatever it is that you like like looking at a, a color and just saying I like that color and not knowing why but allowing yourself to like that color and to just start applying it in shapes or patterns or, you know, to to try and emulate an image. Like, it doesn't have to have a grand plan to be leading somewhere very special. It's actually often a a discovery process and just being able to sort of shed the self-critical blocks that we're putting in our way, perhaps unconsciously, is really important, and I feel like that would be a, a um, a major goal of mine as a teacher is just to, like reduce the 
the power of those blockages and, and strengthen the power of the person who's just simply there to express and like allow that stuff to happen. I, I understand that as well. I like building things. When we bought our house, I completely redid the basement the way I wanted it, Fun, except yeah. for the workshop that the previous oh. owners left. After her husband died, she left all the tools, wow. all of that stuff. And I left that because I like building things. And sometimes I will actually say to my wife, I need to build something. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what, but I need to build something. Yeah. So I understand that completely. Well, and sometimes for for that sort of compulsion, like I think it's just start anything. Mm -hmm. Like even if, so, you know, I had a friend once give me the instruction. Um, he drew a line on a page for me, sort of uh, delicately, and was being very careful about it. Mm -hmm. And then drew another one just quickly and with this sort of force and intention. Just boop, there's the line. And he was like, look, the difference between these two lines is that this one, I was just making a mark on a page, and this one I was drawing. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to show me that there was intention behind the second one, where the first one was kind of unsure and meandering, and there wasn't really a difference in the quality of those lines to look at them, except I could say, like, well, yeah, the second one does have a kind of, like, energy of movement or confidence or something. I, I don't even know exactly what it is, but I'm definitely drawn to finding that like continuous flow of of something emerging so that there isn't the questioning and the the holding of oneself back that happens so often when we start start with a little less um yeah less of an idea about where to go and then just keep asking ourselves but where's this going but where's this going but mm -hmm. what am I doing because those questions aren't helping you get anywhere but to sort of let it happen and maybe even give it a little boost of energy just to see right. and like let that discovery take place instead of crafting and controlling and making every every moment of it like it, it's a it's a hard thing to describe I'm even struggling now but I think it's really valuable for seeing our artistic practices as practices of self-discovery and not practices of uh, our genius artistic minds crafting something of perfection to dote upon the world. Like, that's not really the, the framework that works for me. So No, I actually, I can associate with that mm. because I love tinkering. I have no problems with soldering and lighting and, and building that stuff, but I see so much out there. I finally started to get into 3D printing. So that's helping a lot, more, much more. I bought the 3D printer hoping that I could spark my children's creativity, and I have gone to town with it. I, I, now, do, I now do 3D CAD work wow, okay. and stuff like that, all because I thought that it helped my kids. Then I saw, eh, that's kind of cool, let me try something. And then, then you see what other people have made with it, mm -hmm. and they make the files available. So then you download them, you print the things off yourself, you build, and it's like, huh. Well, no one else has made this sort of thing. Yeah. I'm going to oh, yeah. take my time and try to see if I can do it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so I understand that, but I see all these other things, these other uh, these other components that say, hey, these parts are now available, these parts are now available. And I look at them and it's like, I want to do something with that. That is so cool. I have no clue what mm -hmm. practical use I could possibly have with it, and I don't do anything. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because, like, art does not have practical use right. so it you, you're sort of straddling that line of like you make if you're if you're a maker it's often for the purposes of a, a useful thing yeah 
But, I mean, there's no stopping you from becoming a maker slash sculptor. Right. <laughs> there's no stopping you from just having objects that are for your own curiosity. And perhaps the only thing that's stopping you is that question. It's just like, well, what would I do with that? That is exactly it. Why but would I build it? Why would I want to build it? It has no use for it. <laughs> I have no use for it when it's built. And that is a, that's a roadblock. Yeah, I mean, you have no use for it, and yet the desire exists. Yes. So how do you reconcile those things other than to either say, well, the desire exists, therefore it's valid, and I'm just going to do it, <laughs> or there's no use for it. Okay, so I'll put the desire away. Like, you have that you have that choice always, but it's very, um, it's very interesting for me to see people in a workshop come in saying, like, I can't draw, I just right. can't. And, you know, people who have various abilities for even just holding objects mm-hmm. coming in, and then I'm like... Well, what's the difference between a good drawing and a bad drawing? Like, how how is that defined? And if it's defined one way for you, well, the next question to ask is, so if you are just one of those perspectives, one subjective uh, critic of art, then is it possible for you to make something acknowledging that there are many, many other perspectives and other people might see things in your art that you don't? Mm-hmm. And perhaps that that showing of your work which some people are not interested in and I would understand you know wanting to be satisfied with it privately is also very valuable Um, but that if you're sort of having that push and pull of the question of like I want to do this but I don't know why or I've done something and I don't think I like it Mm -hmm. there might actually be something to learn about yourself and what you're portraying to others when you have that exchange getting to see what they experience when they see your work or when they experience your work so I mean I've I get to be the person who walks around the room and says, like, hey, as a person who makes my whole living around seeing things, uh, hopefully, you know, for for what they are in my interpretation of the world, and definitely in a way that's different from other people's, but, like, this is my, my job, is to, like, look for the value in these things and look for expression and look for someone's unique kind of spark. I can just... I can take like one look at your image and say, "Hey, I see these things. I also see this. I also see this." What would you? What were you thinking when you did that? And I, I hope that that's the same feeling of like curiosity that I'm having about their work is being passed on, so that they can have it about their work too. Because right. that, I mean, yeah, you might make an object and be like, "I don't know what the hell to do with this," and show it to someone else, and they're like, "Whoa, I would love that for this purpose right. that I you didn't even know existed, mm-hmm. or perhaps not a purpose, but I want that on my ma- my mantle because right. I like it. I like it so much." moves me like that doesn't have to be your design the way that it touches other people doesn't have to be your design to find its place but at least for someone who comes in and says I can't draw really they're just not they just haven't like put enough images in their eye to be able to see what they like about this one and not about another one with any refinement of language or uh, or their particular taste being formed yet like that just hasn't happened but it's just a matter of well look at some more stuff think about what it makes you feel try doing some things yourself and it actually just starts to happen that refinement just happens um, so I like to be a person with a little more experience who can say like no it, you might not see it but what you're trying to do is not actually the whole of the value of what you are doing what you are doing has a lot of this unconscious value that I'm going to be able to pick up if I uh, if I perceive it with sort of a blank slate of a mind. I'm not comparing it to anything, basically, as an outside observer, so that really helps. I had the drive to draw since I was a kid. It was a very safe space for me when I had social anxiety and just didn't like doing the things other people liked doing. So I spent a lot of my time drawing as a child, and then when I got into the realms of high school and after I felt much more of that 
internalized criticism, the potential for judgment, the potential for someone to see my work and, and just compare it to like the world of art and you know how well I was achieving certain aspects like the light and shadow and color theory and perspective. These are never things that I really got or was interested in and then you know sort of got myself to a point where not making art was not an option anymore when I had this experience with my voice and I felt there was so much to convey and so much that I wanted to capture and art felt like well specifically comics felt like the best avenue so I mean I've been making that just kind of when I can and initially like with my voice condition being so bad for the first little while I just went on uh, welfare in Canada and just like tried to make it while I was sort of figuring myself out um, and since then it's become something that I have to more fit into my life when I you know I have a shift in the day but I have a couple hours before I can do a little bit of drawing maybe or on my days off I can spend a little more leisure time just like drawing and figuring something out which I very much consider my work yeah. how did uh, so how did you come to be involved with with gripping the con um, well, my book, Dumb, came out last year, and that got circulation far beyond what I was capable of doing before my, when I was just a solo artist traveling to festivals and tabling, just, you know, as, as one does. Um, and I don't know how exactly, I think it was the graphic medicine community, the graphic medicine conference that found me because I'm I very much very squarely in that um, genre. That's like what I do is I write about health and comics about health or graphic medicine. That's so, it. I've actually never heard that phrase graphics medicine before. Yes, and if you were to Google graphic medicine, it is a really fast-growing and very rich field that has a lot to offer and it's just getting bigger. So I very much encourage people to do that to find you know what what forms of that might actually speak to them because we all have different health conditions every person has health and every person has health challenges and there are so many people who are trying to uh, bring more of those discussions and more of these expressive um, stories to to that arena of, of healthcare I mean it's healthcare in the sense of like there are health professionals who are doing it but also healthcare in the sense of like me being responsible for how I relate to my health I can read someone else's story and feel a connection and feel some uh, relief or some like sense of control and, and power and community in that. Right. Um, so I well, me- mental care is still healthcare. Absolutely, yeah, so. all of that. Yeah, there, it's it's so deeply related. I feel to my my pain situation as well. So relieving my emotional troubles is so uh, helpful for just having peace with whatever physical troubles I'm having as well. But I got related to to this conference by someone who I met through the graphic medicine community saying, hey, we have this disability cultural center and I think you should check it out. And just sort of hit the ground running from there because I, I love all the people I've met and we've had such good conversations of you know what we're trying to do. And yeah, I feel very welcomed here. Great. So you said you, uh, you released a book. Is there a website that people can go to to look at it? or Yeah, I mean, my website uh, would give you a taste of the work and of other work that I do, which would just be georgiaweber.com. Um, but then I also released it, the book was put out by Fantagraphics, uh, which is a comics publisher based out of Seattle, and uh, the book itself can be ordered from them there, um, and they're, they're wonderful, so I highly recommend people supporting Fantagraphics in general. They do lots of really interesting graphic medicine work, too. Um, just some, some titles that have come out recently have been very, very important to a number of people in the community. And I mean, Ellen Forney is probably the biggest one that I could mention offhand, but there's definitely a lot of specific support coming from Fantagraphics to this type of work. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
And of course, the whole reason for us being asked back to Cripping the Con is because of our good friend Diane Weiner. She is a research professor and the associate director of the Burton Blatt Institute's Office of Interdisciplinary Programs and Outreach. And she has served as the founding director of the Syracuse University Disability Cultural Center. And she's the organizer for Cripping the Comic Con. So, of course, I needed to talk with her before I left and uh, needed to give her a little something as well. So, Diane, another successful Cripping the Con. Thank you so much for being here, John, and thanks to Mark as well. And it really has been a spectacular day for a number of reasons, one of which is that we really did have people from all over the community. We had children, we had young adults, we had people from multiple identities all over campus, off campus, and people were really, I think, getting to know each other. And we've had ebbs and flows throughout the day, um, and I think that we've had some really great conversations. So we've had more workshops than we've ever offered before. We coordinated with more artists and vendors who approved, of course, to be here on campus. Campus. And there's the Joker in the background. This is only right and proper, of course, of course. And we, <laughs> and we also had, I think, um, a, a group of panelists from all over the country who really did um, exemplify um, our commitment to thinking intersectionally and around what some people call axes of difference. Right. So in talking about the um, black disability rights movement and black disability arts and cultures and thinking about people from different generations and different backgrounds, people with formal academic training, people who do not have formal academic training, uh, multiple ages, people who are just coming up in the world in terms of their professional identities. And one of the things that really delighted me about today is that we have people who are here who type to communicate, um, who use sign language as a primary means of communication, who have sensory needs, sensory orientations. We certainly had a lot of people here with physical and cognitive and emotional and psychological and intellectual, all kinds of disabilities and their non-disabled allies. So this is the last time that I'll be the lead coordinator for equipping the Comic-Con. And so in 2021, Elizabeth Sierra, who's the new director of our Disability Cultural Center, will take the helm and I will be her uh, wingman. I was going to say, you're still going to be involved. Of course I am. Of course I am. So I'll help in a consultative capacity and I'll obviously help in terms of introductions and engagement and helping people meet each other and whatnot. But I will not be in every single level of detail, which is both um, an enormous joy and privilege and also quite a bit of um, labor. Yeah, so I'm really honored and delighted to have done it and to have helped create it with Rachel Zibel Ruggieri and others. And it's been really uh, fabulously meaningful to me. Um, And I'll continue to be involved as many ways as I can. Well, I... Assuming that you listen to the podcast, you know that we will, on occasion, make uh, some of of the people who come onto the show that we interview, we will make them honorary crew members. Oh my God! You're kidding me! I am beside myself. That is an honor. Where shall I put this, though? There are so many options. Maybe I should sew it onto my cape. There you go. I think that's what I'll do. This is a great gift, and it means the world to me. Look at that! <laughs> it has a rocket ship. Yes. Well, let's do an image description of this, shall we? So this is a. It looks like a planet, maybe a Saturn-like planet, and on the uh, ring it says TGP nominal, and then that's in a kind of um, like what periwinkle color, and then we have stars in an arc around a scene in the middle of this circle that has a rocket ship with a star and planets in the background as well. And that is a fabulous, 
fabulous image. So thank you very much for that. I'll treasure it. I will. I think I'll sew it onto my cape. Or maybe it's, <laughs> is this an iron-on? I'm going to figure it out. Uh, I'm not sure, I'll figure actually. it out. That's fantastic. Well, there's someone here who has expertise in uh, sewing and uh, cosplay, and I will ask my friend Nancy Morrow about what her oh, opinion is yes. of this. And yeah. There's Joe, yeah, there's so Joe Nancy's right around. There. That's right. <laughs> so thank you very much for being here, and thank you for joining us. And I'm hoping that you had a chance to talk to a lot of different people who participated, and it really is extremely appreciated that you were able to be with us. Thank you. Thank for, you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for contacting us and letting us do this. And uh, I will see you in two years. I look forward to that. I hope I see you before then, John. Peace, love, and granola. And that concludes our coverage for Cripping the Comic-Con for 2019. Now, admittedly, there were a number of other people who I really wanted to speak to, but unfortunately, the format for the way it works didn't really make that uh, possible, unfortunately. And that's okay. Fortunately, I was unable to talk to Lucy Wales, who is a fantastic artist if you look at her website and we'll have links to it in the show notes. She's a freelance artist. She's currently working on the comic Humammoth for Numina Comics, uh, as well as her own webcomic. And like many others that we've spoken to, uh, she uses art as a tool to help her get through her depression. I also wanted to talk to Keith Jones and Leroy F. Moore Jr., both of whom are involved with Crip Hop. Now, Keith Jones is president and CEO of Soul Touch and Experiences, which is an association that's aimed at bringing a perspective to issues of access and inclusion, uh, empowerment, and so forth, which affect him as well as other people with disabilities. And he founded Crip Hop Nation, which is an international collection of artists with disabilities that's currently celebrating its 10th anniversary. So Leroy Moore Jr. is also one of the co-founders of Crip Hop Nation, and he's also one of the founding members of the National Black Disability Coalition. I was listening to the panel on the way up, because I, I had to drive up at 6.30 in the morning. Boy, that was fun. And you'll be able to listen to the panel, too. We'll make sure that that's included in the show notes. And after hearing both of them at the panel, I really, really was looking forward to interviewing them. But unfortunately, my interest wasn't... Uh, my interest wasn't the only one. Other people wanted to talk with them a lot as well. And in what time I had available to perform interviews, there were people already talking with them. So unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity. But if you're interested in the works of anyone that I interviewed or wasn't able to interview, then we will, again, have links in the show notes. And I once again want to thank Diane Weiner for inviting us back and for Syracuse University for hosting the event. Many thanks to everyone who, who gave me some time with interviews, and you can find more information at CrippingTheCon.com. Again, Mark should be back with Ross Hockham for your December Skies episode, and hopefully things will start to settle down so Mark and I can get back together and do these podcasts a bit more regularly for you. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to give some good news with the next one. But until then, thank you for listening, and uh, of course, gotta end the podcast with Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. 
If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, Spanhead Productions. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com.